For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 down to 24. Now, what's interesting is, I've studied these verses this last semester, and one of the things I realized was that these verses are kind of like a time capsule. Time capsules are cool, right? Don't you kind of hope sometimes you're digging around in your yard and you'll find a time capsule? Uh, maybe that's just me, but I think time capsules are cool. Well, here's what I mean. Uh, as you look at these verses in 1 Thessalonians, uh, there's been some work done by a guy named Ed Selwyn where he actually created this chart and he compared the teachings of 1 Peter 3 and Romans 12 and 1 Thessalonians 5 and he noticed that it seemed as though in each of these letters the authors were teaching the same kinds of things, things that they believe were a kind of early catechism, basic teachings for new Christians. So as we look at these verses, what we'll find is, is that we are getting some teaching, a little window into how Paul himself would have educated new Christians. Now, here's why it matters for First Thessalonians. If you remember the way that this church began in, in Macedonia, in, in Acts 17, we find the story of how Paul and Silas were, were entering into this city and they began to teach that Jesus was the Christ. And they were received really well. We're told that a, a great many uh, Jews and some of the uh, devout, uh, some of the Gentiles, as well as some of the leading women of the city began to believe. And it became so bad that the leadership of the Jews became jealous. And, and they went out and they, they got together some wicked guys to cause them some trouble. And they took guys like Jason out in the street and they they said, look, you, you've got to stop this. You're turning the world upside down. You need to cease and desist. And so they kicked Paul and Silas out of the city. Now think about this. Paul and Silas only taught there for, it seems, three Sabbaths. By my count, that's three weeks. Three weeks before they were kicked out of the city. Now, this letter comes because Paul became concerned about this church. He was away from them, and he was wondering, had these people that professed faith in Christ continued in the faith, or did they turn away? Well, it's at that point that Paul sends Timothy to go do recon. He says, go check it out. See if they still believe. And when he went, he observed that they were still loving one another, still sharing the gospel, still faithful in Christ. And he runs back to Paul, who's probably at Corinth this, this time, and he says, guess what, Paul? Good news, they're still in. They still love Jesus. And so this letter is really... Paul's response to this church, he is encouraged, he's excited, he's excited that they have been faithful through suffering, that they have not given up on Christ. They're still waiting for Jesus to come back for them. And as he ends this letter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he reminds them of what looks to be some of the basic teachings that he likely taught them before. Now, I, I created a picture Actually, Malachi helped me make a picture because I'm not a good drawer. But in this picture, we get a, a, a really a, a graphic that helps illustrate how relational this teaching is. So you'll notice that as you look through the verses in verses 12 to 13 that were just read, it, it speaks about within the context of a church, and we know that the church, of course, is the people, not the steeple, but it makes sense, right? In the church, we have relationships, relationship between the shepherd, that's what the staff is. And, and then, of course, the congregation as a whole, that's where you have a number of sheep. And then, of course, you have the individual sheep, individual Christians. And, and within that context, these relationships, they, 
They have certain expectations of one another and how they're to do life together. And Paul teaches on this in these verses. So in verses 12 to 13, he talks about how pastors should treat their people and and how the people should respond to their pastors. As we look next week at verse 14, we're going to find how Christians ought to respond as individual Christians to the church. And then also in verse 15, we'll see how Christians should relate to non-Christians. That's the others in that circle outside. There's a different way that they respond and relate to them. And then, of course, he closes with some discussion in the final verses about how the church relates to God and God relates to them. Well, we're going to begin this week looking at the way that church members uh, interact and live with their pastors in verses 12 to 13. Now, this seems to take priority. The reason I say this is notice that he begins the list with a discussion about how people should respond to their pastors. It's a first-order issue. Now, our big idea is this. You can write this down if you take notes. It's that Christians need to recognize, respect, and love their pastors. And we'll see all of these in the verses. I know some of you are thinking that as a pastor, this is sort of a self-serving kind of message. We're not going to have a special offering after the service. That's not what we're doing here. I'm just preaching what the Word says. And I think it's helpful for us to be reminded of what it is that pastors and the relationships with church members look like according to God's Word. Well, notice first, Christians recognize their pastors in verse 12. They recognize their pastors. Now, we don't know when or how the Thessalonians developed their their leadership. We're not told. It might be that Jason from Acts 17 was part of this leadership. We don't know. But notice that Paul is asking the brothers, these these brothers and sisters, not just the church leaders, but the brothers and sisters in Christ, the church as a whole, about how they should relate to the leadership. In other words, he's speaking to the the church. He's not saying, hey, leaders, here's what to do. He's saying, hey, folks, like congregation, this is how you ought to recognize your leaders. And when an apostle asks the family of God to do something, you recognize that he's not asking in the sense of offering a recommendation that you can file away in some suggestion box to either be taken seriously or not. He is speaking with a kind of apostolic authority. Now catch what he says in verse 12. He says this, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now here, the word for respect comes from the same word for to know. And it could be taken in a couple different ways. Respect could mean to honor someone, to go give them honor, give those who lead the church honor. We, we see the same idea of honoring and respecting leadership in verse 13 that we'll see in just a second. But it could also mean something else. In other words, it could be something distinct from what we're about to read in verse 13. It could mean to recognize the leaders. And here's what that would mean. It would mean that you have these new leaders in a fledgling church, and maybe they're a little bit like, hey, you can't tell me what to do. Who do you think you are? And here, what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. Leadership is good. Godly leadership is a gift. It's a kind gift that should be received and recognized. Now, he's not talking about Abusive leadership, 
He's not talking about a kind of leadership that abandons, but he's saying that a, a godly leadership is a gift to the church. Make sure you recognize them. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 15, where he is encouraging the church to recognize the leadership of the house of Stephanus. He's giving credibility to the leadership that is in this young church. See, I take it that Paul tells this new church plant that they need to recognize and respect their leaders for their labors, for their work. Now, I think this word work within the context of Thessalonians is important. If you understand the social structure of Thessalonica, uh, this was a people that was run off of the system of benefactors and clients. So uh, you'd have benefactors who had power and status and prestige, and they would care for what we call clients so long as those clients supported the benefactors and their purposes through votes or support or applause. And then, of course, you had a third category of servants or slaves. They were the ones who did the work. Clients didn't want to do work, so they tried to keep the benefactors happy. Well, here what we find is the leaders in the church, they are told that the church needs to respect them, not because of their status, not because they just have some kind of authority to delegate benefits, but instead, he says, these are those who are working for you. They are doing the hard, messy labor to care for the people of God. And so then he goes on to describe the kind of labor that they're going to be engaged in. But notice here that their position, their, their respect and honor, it, it is not that they are being recognized because of worldly status, position, possessions, or office, but according to three things that we're going to get to in just a second. Now, I thought this was a helpful time just to sort of pull over the bus and explain how our leadership at Trinity Bible Church works. See, we take note that the apostles entrusted the leadership of the church to pastors. Pastors who were also called elders and overseers. In fact, if you look at Acts 20, you'll find that Paul is preparing for what might be his death in the church of Ephesus. And he hands over the mantle of leadership to elders, which he also calls pastors and overseers in Acts chapter 20. He uses all three titles for that same office. And so as we think about the leadership of the church, we're thinking primarily about these elders, pastors, and overseers. See, Paul sees basic Christianity as reminding suffering Christians, being persecuted for their faith, experiencing great loss, that they need pastors in their lives. And here at Trinity Bible Church, we are an elder-led church. That means that you have elders that lead you through preaching and teaching. We're trying to guide you on how to make wise decisions in your life so that you are ready not just to live tomorrow on Monday, but every day until that last day when Jesus comes back. That's our hope for you. Our hope isn't just that you make a decision for Jesus. We want that. It's not just that you are following Jesus on Monday. We dream of you being alongside us when Jesus returns. You need shepherds for that. And here what you'll notice is, is at Trinity Bible Church, we have both a, a mixture of paid and lay elders. I'm told it's the lay elders that keep the paid elders honest. It's a joke. We, we hopefully are all honest. And we currently have full -time, two full-time pastors. In a week, we're going to be voting on a 
third pastor, Stephen Anderson, as our pastor of Community Life. And so please be at that Pulse meeting so you can vote on him. If you're not going to vote for him, he said you don't have to come. So, um, <clears throat> But I don't think we'll have any of that. But notice, Paul tells us he didn't take a salary, but yet he encouraged Timothy to make sure that full-time pastors were cared for well in 1 Timothy 5.17. It's there that he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That, that's speaking of a salary. Particularly those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, why did he say that? Well, he goes on to explain, because the ox is worth its wages. So if you're a paid pastor, you're like an ox. I don't think he's speaking about looks, hopefully. But no, he's, he's really just giving a common illustration to talk about the fact that ox are beasts of, of burden and, and they deserve uh, wages for their work and their labors and so do pastors. And let me just say, thank you so much, Trinity Bible Church, for the way that you have provided for my family as well as the families of other oxen like Mal and, and Stephen and others. You have blessed us, blessed me with giving us more pastors to carry the load so that we can love you well. Uh, I, I would just say this, over the last 12 years, I haven't had a dinner on my table that hasn't ultimately come from your generosity. Thank you. But here's what's interesting, though. Paul talks to Timothy about the kind of character pastors should have in 1 Timothy 3. You remember that? He, he talks to pastors. This is the, he says, Timothy, here's how you choose good pastors. Go and delegate them. And then uh, you'll remember that Peter speaks to the pastors themselves about the kind of heart they should have when they pastor the people. Hopefully it's willingly and happily. But here, Peter, I mean, Paul is speaking to the church about how they should view the leaders as an issue of first importance. And they should value their labor. Why, though? Why is it that he's speaking to the Christians here, reminding them of respecting the elders? Well, John Calvin explains in his commentary, saying this, Hence it is not so much for the advantage of ministers that he is writing this, as of the whole church. That those who faithfully preside over it should be held in esteem. Paul intimates that the reason why less honor is shown to teachers themselves than is befitting is because their labor is not ordinarily taken into consideration. The world does not consider the labor of pastors, the work of the church. It's the church that does that, that values that, that sees the value of the things that God has given. And Paul wants Christians to consider what pastors do, and he gives three reasons to recognize men like this. He, he says, I want you to recognize them because of their, their labor among you, their leadership over you, and their admonishment of you. We're going to look at each of those. Notice first, they labor among you. Now, maybe you're wondering, what do pastors do? I, I still remember when Abby Viedmark, who's about to go off to college, was six years old. And, and she asked me in one of our first discussions, Pastor Josh, what do pastors do? I mean, I know you speak once a week, but what do you do with the rest of your free time? I mean, out of the mouth of babes, right? I mean, I'm sure that there are Many folks who have thought that, but not dared to ask it. Well, in Acts 6-4, we, we find, I believe, uh, a picture of what pastors would be about. It's there that the twelve instituted this office of deacon. And we're told there the reason that they began the office of deacon was because they wanted to free up these apostles, these teachers, the twelve, to, denote, to devote themselves to prayer 
and the ministry of the word. That is really the main job description of pastors, that they are praying for you and that they are teaching you, that they are devoting themselves to God's word. And you'll remember again in Acts 20, Paul is handing that mantle of ministry on to elders over local churches. Those elders, they feed God's people, God's word, which hopefully culminates and climaxes in a greater understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And we're those who are fighting off bad doctrines that might derail you from making it all the way to the return of Christ. See, that's why Paul tells Timothy to keep a close watch on your life and doctrine in 1 Timothy 4.16. It is central to the thing that God has called you to amongst the people of God. Now back to Reese's question. What do you do, Pastor Josh? Well, I I can't tell you all the things that all the pastors do because we do many things, but I wanted to give you just a window into what pastors do by giving you a window into what I did last semester. So uh, just to give you a window into it, uh, it typically takes me 20 hours to preach a message like this on a Sunday morning. Some of you are like, that seems like way too long. But the, shorters feel short, the sermons feel shorter now, right? You realize how much time actually goes into preparing to teach you. Now you're like, well, where do you spend your time? Well, you wouldn't maybe know this readily if you're just opening an English Bible, but that English Bible wasn't originally in English. It was in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. And so I'm trying to spend a lot of time in the original languages, understanding what the original context was, what the original author meant. And then I'm trying to understand, okay, so uh, how does this point to Christ? That's my favorite part, making much of Jesus. And then after I get there, I'm like, okay, now that we've understand what this does to point to Christ, now the question is, how do we as believers rightly live in response to this? That, that takes a ton of time. Uh, I, I, spend, I spent last semester about eight hours preparing for a Wednesday night study on this book, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, then we also have a three-hour pastoral internship every week where I meet with a number of interns, where I'm training them for pastoral ministry. In addition to that, I had a great time with some lay leaders where we went through the book Lead by Paul Tripp and some other books thinking about leadership in the church, just trying to develop more leadership with the godly men that we have here. Now, at this point, we're already at about 40 hours, right? This does not account for emergencies. And you might not know this, but when you have, you know, three to 400 people in a church, emergencies hit, sometimes a lot. This last week, a lot. And when they do, that means that you have to care for souls. And so, praise God, we have a lot of elders, a lot of pastors, a lot of work to care for the people of God, a glorious work. Nothing I'd rather do. But lay elders, lay elders, they also share the weight, the burden of pastoral ministry as well. These are men who have full-time jobs or retired and are spending countless hours doing all kinds of things. They're doing things like one-to-one discipleship relationships, uh, administrative uh, training or preparation for us. They're mentoring others, hosting community groups, sending off emails, visiting people, counseling others, attending elders' meetings. Uh, These are brothers who are giving their lives to loving you well, in addition to a full-time job. With the exception of preaching, our other pastors are doing all of these things. Well, we also pray a great deal. Not only do we give ourselves to the ministry of the Word, we pray for you a lot. Prayer, we, we speak to God on your behalf. Uh, we have a public pastoral prayer during the service each week. In fact, Harry prayed for you this morning. 
He is modeling how to pray for you, and he is praying for you. Uh, We also pray as elders when we meet together. We usually have two meetings, one in person and one on Zoom. The one that we have in person, we literally are going through our membership directory, that little currently yellow book, and we are praying one by one through a section at a time for you about specific things. And if we don't know how to specifically pray for you, then we email you to ask how we can pray for you better. Why? Because pastors pray for their people. We also pray individually for you. Uh, Many of us will will pray uh, individually during the week for you. We'll pray through the directory for you. But we are constantly lifting you up to the Lord. We also uh, have times where we'll have those who are sick and come to ask and ask for specific prayers, special prayers. In fact, I, I had this huge encouragement a few weeks ago where a woman came up to me and said, I went through a decade of not being able to have a baby. The elders prayed for me. It reminded me of things that I needed to, to give over to the Lord and repent of. And I believe that I'm now pregnant because of the prayers of the elders. Praise God. We, we pray because we believe that God answers prayer. But did you notice that Paul highlight something particular in this sentence. He says, I want you to respect those who labor among you. Did you catch that? Those who labor among you. See, the Thessalonians, they might have appealed to distant pastors or apostles, maybe even Paul himself, and said, Paul's my pastor. Paul's, you know, he's, he's going to be back. Or, you know, Jesus is the chief shepherd. I don't really need the under-shepherds. But Paul says you need pastors and leaders among you who know what you look like, and you know what they look like, who know what you smell like, who know what your preferences are, the, the sin proclivities that you have so that they can encourage and shepherd you. Please hear me, podcast. Podcasts are fine. I like podcasts. I listen to a lot of them. But Paul Washer does not counsel you. He's not among you. And H.B. Charles does not prepare for his sermon with you in mind, not thinking about you. That's the pastors of Trinity Bible Church. See, these men, they can't be among you Because they are finite men. They are limited by space and time and energy and attention. That's why Christ says that we need many pastors over each of many churches. So that you can have a pastor among you. Does that that make sense? You need a pastor among you. Someone who knows you. I mean, isn't it so easy to have a dating relationship, so I've heard, online? And yet things change when you spend time in person with someone, don't they? When you start to see who they truly are. And so many of us, ideal pastors is the best kind of pastor for us. And isn't it so much easier to have a pastor that doesn't know us and our weaknesses? But Paul says you need pastors who preach, teach, and serve among you. And you need to recognize these men. And we have amazing elders who deserve recognition for their labors Here, exclude me for a minute. You might ask, how do I know that these men are amazing elders? How do I know that they are fine shepherds? It's because they have walked alongside me in my darkest hours. And I've seen these shepherds 
shepherd my soul. These are competent, godly, loving, hopeful, gentle, wise men who are good for a soul that is languishing. They've shepherded my soul and they will do the same for you. We are crazy blessed at Trinity Bible Church with the elders that we have. In fact, this is going to be a little bit awkward, but if you're an elder here, would you just stand up? You're not all here, but would you stand up if you're an elder? Let's go, guys. See, they don't even like to stand up. This is these guys. These are your elders. Can we just give them a hand? Others are out and around, but I am so grateful for these godly men. We need to recognize them, not just now, but continuously. But catch this. Paul tells these young converts that pastors are also second over you in the Lord. Verse 12. Now, I know that we live in a culture that says that authority is is bad. It's evil. In fact, it seems like there is this systemic challenge to all kinds of good God-created authority, authorities like parents in the home, or the authority of the Bible, or the authority of pastors. There's this systemic, it seems to be, working to overturn authority and say that all authority is bad. Now hear me, some authority is bad. There have been abuses. That kind of authority needs to be called out, it needs to repent, and it needs to be called to, to change. But Just because I've had a bad meal doesn't mean that I've given up on food, obviously. In the same way, if you've had a bad pastor, doesn't mean you need to give up on pastors. If you've had an experience where you've seen a husband of another wife who is Abusive. It doesn't mean that all husbands are abusive or that the institution that God has created of marriage is bad. And God tells us that we need godly pastors, pastors for your soul. See, we shouldn't think of this phrase, over you, in the way that I would expect a Dalmatian puppy to respond to Cruella de Vil, right? I think a Dalmatian sees Cruella and he's like, oh, no, I mean, that... That puppy's getting out of there, right? On the run. Well, I fear that some people, when they think about pastors, especially when they find themselves caught in sin or the brokenness of this world, the the institution that God has given to to come alongside them and help them as a shepherd to, to care for their souls, and yet, because they have this wrong picture of what it means to be over you, They're running away rather than running to the source that God has given them for joy and delight and care and comfort. See, leadership and care are really intrinsic to this idea of being over. In the the Greek, this word carries both leading and caring for. Those ideas go hand in hand. They're they're not really separable in the intent of this meaning. See, leadership and care, they just go hand in hand. Leaders are over you in the Lord. And they are commissioned to care for you and seek your good, praying for you and instructing you in the Word, both publicly and privately. Now just come in close for a second. God has chosen to use imperfect pastors to shepherd an imperfect people as He transforms both of us together. Did you all catch that? 
You might think like, man, I'm looking for the perfect pastor. And if I found him, I would be first in line. Well, the perfect pastor is coming. It's Jesus. And that pastor told you that you need imperfect pastors and you've already disobeyed him before he even showed up. We need imperfect people, imperfect pastors, wholeheartedly devoted to Christ to lead an imperfect people. Pastors are not an optional amenity of the Christian life, according to Paul, Peter, and the rest of the New Testament. In fact, in Ephesians 4.11, Paul says, He, being Jesus, gave, amongst other things, shepherds and pastors. Shepherds are pastors, same word. And teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, pastors are a gift from God to you for the good of your soul. They're a gift. They are for the strengthening of your faith. So that you're not tossed to and fro by every bad doctrine. By every bad moral action that you think you might want to reflect. They are those who are looking to equip you for the works of ministry so that you can be more fruitful in the various ways that God wants to use you for his glory in this life until Christ returns. Now let me ask you, do you think that Jesus gives us gifts that we do not need? No. It was one of two things, 50-50 shot. I appreciate the brother stepping out. We, we need the gifts that Jesus gives us. We need the spiritual gifts. We need the body of Christ. We need the gifts of the Spirit, including the gift of pastors and teachers. Now, Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, Here's the verse that really wakes me up in the morning. Your pastors, including me, will give an account for you when Jesus returns. Let me just ask you this morning, who is going to give an account for your soul? Now, this is one of the reasons that we value church membership here. We live in a transient metro area of around 5 million people who like to move around a lot. And so if, if one day I'm going to have to come before Jesus and give an account for something, don't you think that if I take that seriously as a pastor, I want to know who it is that I'm giving account for? I want to know. If you're not a church member, or a member of a church, find a healthy church and entrust yourself to it. You also needed leaders third who admonish you. He also says you need them to admonish you. Now, admonish is one of those words that all of us love. It's a word that means to correct how many people love to be corrected? Okay, are y'all listening? Like I said, correct it. All right. Well, correct is the same word that means to warn, to avoid an improper course. It's kind of like you're driving down the road, and you get a do-to-er sign that says you need to turn this way. If you don't, you're going to go over a bridge, right? So it's, it's like correct course. You're, you're, you're leaning in the wrong way. It's dangerous. Shift now. And in verse 9, Paul is reminding them that they, he's already said, look, you are destined for salvation and not wrath. But we need to keep you on the right path, and pastors are part of Christ's gift to you to help you stay on that right path. Paul sees admonishment as part of God's plan. 
God's plan to get us all the way home. See, as Paul handed over the mantle of leadership to the elders of of the church in Ephesus, he commanded them to admonish. But I I love the description of the way that he describes it in Acts 20.31. Here's what he tells them. He says, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you with tears. Now, when you hear that, you might be thinking like, like, Paul seems kind of like a manly man. Why is he crying about correcting others? I always think of him as kind of the, the Rambo of the apostles, right? Like he goes in, he lays heavy theological wood, and he walks away and says, get fixed. That's not Paul. And that's not the kind of correction and admonishment that Paul offers. No, he's doing it with tears. See, admonishment is always driven by sacrificial love that's motivated by an eschatological hope that we might present everyone mature in Christ at Jesus' return. But why did Paul admonish with tears? Well, let me give you kind of an illustration to help you sense this. As you read through Paul's letters, you get some reasons that as he's trying to correct them, that he might have been brought to tears. This is a shepherd who loves the people of God. You'll notice a number of illustrations. So let me just ask you a question here. If you saw your child getting chewed up by a wolf, would it cause you to tear up a little bit? Yeah. I mean, you'd kill the wolf, and then you'd cry over the injury, right? And if you didn't tear up, we'd think something was wrong with you. Well, Paul feared false teachers would attack the church like wolves. That they would, they would chew on these beloved Christians. Would you tear up if your kids looked more like the world than Christ? Well, think about the book of Corinthians. They were dividing all, over all kinds of things. I mean, they were fighting over favorite teachers. They treated poor members poorly. They fought over what food they could eat. And on and on. The only thing they didn't fight about or over was sin. I mean, this was a a group of people that were just divided. I mean, have any of you moms ever just had your kids fight to the degree that you were brought to tears? Because you loved them? Because you wanted more for them? And even more so if you thought they did not love Christ and did not look Christ and Christ was not being formed in them? I mean, this is a, a pastor who loves his people. They look like the world. He watched Christians walk away from the faith to give in themselves to sexual sin. And suffered, uh, some of them suffered even beatings for their faith, even death. And he was admonishing, correcting with tears. Now, just to give you an illustration, once I was uh, wrestling with my oldest son, Benjamin, and I was laying on the floor with my eyes closed because I thought we were done, and I opened my eyes just in time to see him jumping off the top sort of arm of our couch, knee first into my, my midsection. And when he touched down, I, I just screamed in pain. He had not really heard me scream before. And began, he began immediately to tear up and thought, oh my goodness, what's wrong with dad? I thought you were Iron Man. I thought you could not be hurt. And you scream like a girl when you get hurt. 
Now, that was just last week, so don't give them a hard time. <laughs> but pastors don't admonish or correct you as indestructible superheroes. They bleed and cry like everyone else. In fact, much of the way that they love and care for you and counsel you is because of tears that they have cried in the past, blood that they have experienced in their own experiences with Christ. I mean, here's the beauty of pastors who know the sorrows of this life. They don't speak of the comfort available to those in Christ amid suffering as a hypothetical reality that they've heard about. Good pastors, they, they speak of the comfort that is brought to us in Christ as an experiential one. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves have been comforted. See, we admonish with tears because we know the bitter pain of the consequences of sin and the hopelessness of a life outside of Christ. We know what it is to weep over death. And those we love being far from God, walking away from Christ. This last week, I had a brother who made a mistake. Started spiraling, and he needed correction, but you know what he also needed? He needed to be loved and cared for. And I reminded him of things that had not changed, that Christ's love for him had not changed, his pastor's love for him had not changed, the church's love for him had not changed, and encouraged him not to run, that I knew that there was an internal desire just to run as far as he could away. And he said, how did you know how to speak to me in that way? I was like, because I've, I've been there. I know the thoughts. I've wanted to run. I've gotten my running shoes out. And I've heard the comfort of Christ quiet my soul, bring me peace amidst the chaos. And that's what pastors do. They come alongside you in your tears and they love you well. Now, I've told you before that I was in Jerusalem and it was really beautiful. They sold these 3,000-year-old vases that Jews would capture their tears in. It comes from Psalm 56.8 where David writes, You have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God sees every tear, catches it, takes note of it, remembers it. And Jews understood that God would attend every tear with his comfort so that every tear was kind of like a promise from God. Revelation 24 seems to pick up on a similar idea where it promises that on the last day, God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things they have passed away. He will wipe away every tear, past, present, future. And on the last day, your pastors, I believe, will have a good number of tears that have been shed on your behalf, seeking to get you home. And we should recognize men who are doing this. Until then, I think we need to remember that a healthy church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. This is a place where the sick come to get well. Second, respect your pastors very highly in love. It, it speeds up from here. Verse 13 says, and to esteem them very high in love because of their work. Now, this means they are to consider or respect them very highly as expressed by love. They need to recognize and respect them in love. This is a different kind of leadership than the world. Uh, You'll you remember that famous uh, quote that went something like, 
uh, from Machiavelli, right, the prince. He says something like, you know, if I had a choice between fear and love, I would have my people fear me. I think they'll follow me better. But here, what Paul says is that might be worldly leadership, but in the house of God, we should be a people of love, that love our leaders and are loved by our leaders. Paul says leaders ought to enjoy the love of the community of God's people. The Thessalonians were notable for their love. I mean, here's the beauty. Paul opened this letter praising God because of the testimony and account that he heard of this people's love. They were famous for love. And in 4.9, Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That's a pretty high commendation for love. They're notable for their love. They are growing in love. And yet, Paul ends his letter to new Christians, reminding them to esteem their leaders highly in love. You're loving, grow in love, love your leaders, be loved by your leaders. Now, why do you think they needed to be reminded to love their leaders? I can think of a lot of reasons. Maybe you can think of some really good ones too. Suffering can turn us inward and it can cause us to forget God's good gifts to us, right? I mean, how many of you, when life gets hard, you forget to pray when prayer is the most important thing that you need? You forget to surround yourself with the community of God at the church. You want to draw away. You want to run from pastors rather than run to them. Or maybe you forget, maybe their real pastors failed to meet their ideal standards. You know, Jason, he doesn't preach as good as Paul does. Wish he were back. I'll wait till he gets back. They lost confidence in the return of Jesus because they got tired of waiting. Maybe. Maybe they thought too much of pastors that they couldn't understand the unique struggles they faced and they wished they had earthier pastors who got them. Maybe they began to listen to the perspective of non-Christians toward their pastors. You know, I just need pastors that connect better with non-Christians. I'm sure you could come up with all kinds of reasons yourself, reasons our hearts need to be reminded to love our pastors. But hear this, Hebrews 13, 17 says that you should make it a joy to be led because it is no advantage to you for it not to be a joy. Now, how can we do that? Well, I think so many of you like do this. I almost wrote a list of all the great things that y'all have done to encourage me throughout the years and others, but I try to take more of a generalist approach, right? So let me just give you some ways that you can encourage pastors. The first is lean into the church with your love and spiritual gifts. Pastors are people too. Pastors are Christians too. I mean, we get jazzed when I hear about the kind of sacrificial hospitality that you guys show to others, the way that you welcome new people in the church, the way that you invite your friends to come to hear Christ preached at Trinity Bible Church. Those things encourage us like I hope they encourage everybody else. I would encourage you uh, to do what the Scriptures say as well. Share all good things with leaders in Galatians 6.6. 6. We've already talked about this, providing well for them. Our church does that. They have done that. And one of the encouraging things that, that I think about just in this season is, I didn't realize that over COVID, a number of churches had to close the doors. A number of churches saw their budgets go down to half of what it was before COVID. And yet in this season, we actually have had giving go up. And I'm just grateful to you brothers and sisters for your faithfulness, even amidst the pandemic. Thank you for being faithful in this. 
Pray for pastors to teach and preach faithfully. Pray that I don't become a heretic accidentally or purposely. Pray that our other elders don't become heretics, that we stay close to the gospel. Encourage pastors when they encourage you. Let them know. Let them know if, if they have been encouraged, if, you, if they have done something that has encouraged you in your life. Uh, I still remember a, a story of a guy who came up to me one time, one of our members, and he was like, hey, I just wanted to let you know that like, you said something that really, really helped my life. And he said, um, it was five years ago. I guess I probably should have showed you earlier. And I was like, yeah, that would have helped. I could have used it, <laughs> you know, but grateful that he shared it. But that encouragement, just encouraging when, when elders take time to counsel you, to do premarital counseling with you, preparing you for marriage, like take time just to say, hey, thanks. Like you ministered to me in my life and you helped me. It's a blessing. Hopefully you're doing that to all the saints. Give your pastors the benefit of the doubt in the same way that you would want them to give you the benefit of the doubt. Run to pastors, not away from them. Be creative with how you encourage pastors. Recognize them for faithfulness. Now, here's, here's a life hack just for loving pastors well. Treat their wives and their kids really well. That makes pastors really happy. Listen to them. Trust them. And then two final quick applications. If there is sin or abuse, this does not apply. Talk to other elders about it. And realize that part of loving pastors well is that if you perceive a wrong that is done to you, to go to them with two or three witnesses, as 2 Timothy encourages you to do. And catch this, that's what we would do with any other Christian. If any of you had a problem with a brother that needs to be reconciled, a problem with a sister, you would take two or three other brothers or sisters in Christ who are witnesses to clean that up. And this is the same thing that all pastors are called to. But here's what's fascinating. Notice verse 13. He says, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, you might think this sounds disconnected from responsibilities to pastors. I mean, be at peace amongst yourselves. How does this connect with pastors? Well, you'll notice that the peace of God calls members to fight for peace that comes from God. If you look in verses 23 to 24, see, peace carries with it more than just this idea of not fighting those who are outside or not fighting with those who are inside the church. It actually speaks of something more of, of a wholeness. It's not just speaking of this piece of not having division, gossip, fractions, fighting. It, it is that. But it speaks of a joyful flourishing of life as opposed to a world of death that's passing away. This should be a place of hope and peace and joy. This would be a place where we're excited when little girls dance in the aisle as we're singing worship songs. If you scan down to verses 23 to 24, you'll see that we need the God of peace to make more and more peaceful and that God himself will surely make us whole. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Now, the church is a place where God's peace is touching down until God's peace fully arrives with Christ. And pastors, our aim is to be a people of peace and to aim at peace. We, we put in the grit and we see in verses 23 to 24 that it's the God of peace that gives the grace. We experience peace with God and it helps us actually bring joy, hope, and meaning to a hopeless life and flourishing vitality to the world that's passing away. Now, we're going to be talking about peace in our Beatitudes series. 
So I'm going to move on. But let me just close with a couple of thoughts about the way that we view pastors. And I think these applications could actually work with pastors and the way they view other pastors. There are two ways that that we could sort of fall off the horse in the way that we look at pastors. And sometimes you can waffle between these two. Maybe you have too high a view of pastors. And maybe your view is too low. And I'm sure all of us need to recalibrate. If you view pastors not just as very highly, but too highly, it could be that you're holding a pastor on a kind of pedestal where you see them as sinless. You expect more than faithfulness from them. And when you seek their counsel, you expect that pastor to show up with an infinity stone and to snap his fingers and for it to go away. And when it doesn't, you feel like he failed at his job. You don't have realistic expectations of him. You don't expect him to ever sin or disappoint you. And in some ways, you don't really see that he needs Christ as desperately as you do. Your pastors need Jesus just as much as you. And pastors need pastors and the community of the church just like you do. That's not the view of Paul that pastors are are way up here and that people are down here. He he says, show extraordinary respect for them. and, And yet, if they sin against you, they're not too high to go to them as a brother or sister, a brother in Christ, as a brother and sister, and say, I, I'm just I'm concerned. Can we talk this out? If you get disappointed by a pastor, don't just walk away. Seek reconciliation. Maybe they are not as good as you thought, but maybe they will make more sense if you listen to them, and perhaps God would use you as an encouragement in their lives. Or maybe it's not that it's too high. Your, your, your view's not too high, but it's too low. Maybe you think you don't need a pastor. Maybe you think a podcast is sufficient. Maybe you don't see pastors as a gift from Jesus that you need. Or maybe you don't value pastors because you don't value the preaching of the Word of God in prayer.